Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. We're recognized, but still fringe. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian. Today's episode is Only a Few Steps to Outer Heaven, our introductory episode on Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty from 2001. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table and for discussion as we progress through the games. So today, we begin our coverage of the much-anticipated sequel to 1998's massive hit Metal Gear Solid, MGS2 Sons of Liberty. Before we dive into the story itself, we'll go over some of the production beats leading up to the release of Metal Gear Solid 2. Uh, Production began in 1999, and can you guess what the original title of Metal Gear Solid 2 was? That's right, Metal Gear Solid 3. Uh, In part because the game itself would uh, have two distinct components, uh, the snake portion uh, to open and the write-in portion after, uh, partially for the three eyes of the Roman numeral uh, representation of three, representing the three tallest buildings in New York. Uh, This is all pre-9-11, so the two uh, Twin Towers, the World Trade Center, uh, was considered two of those three eyes. And the three was also meant to just be disorienting in a way uh, that the game itself is designed to be. Uh, Jumping from MGS to MGS3 would, you know, would fans think that they missed something? And this sort of number fuckery with the titling of the series uh, would rear its head later on with uh, Peace Walker and MGS5. V has come too, is, you know, what I think of. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we'll talk about it when we get there. But I think uh, the peace sign of the uh, person making a V with their fingers, because uh, Kojima really wanted to call Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker Metal Gear Solid 5. So uh, he likes playing with that, which is always fun. Uh, production on Metal Gear Solid 2 began in September 1998, which is also the month that the first title was released. Uh, while the original game came out late in the Sony PlayStation's life cycle, MGS2 was geared to be released early in the PS2 life cycle, with the PlayStation 2 scheduled for October 2000 release in North America, and MGS2 would come out the following fall. Uh, We could do a whole episode just on the significance of the PS2 as a piece of hardware. Uh, The idea of multimedia came alive with this device. Uh, You could play games, watch movies, listen to music, and even get online in a very primitive form. And as with all MGS titles, Kojima and his team did all they could to get everything out of the hardware and its cutting-edge CPU unit, uh, which was called the Emotion Engine, or EE, uh, which will be an Easter egg in this game in the form of Hale's sister, uh, EE Emma Emmerich. Uh, KCE Japan would work with Sony, uh, begrudgingly on Sony's part, uh, to access the base-level computing modules on the hardware, uh, as opposed to the libraries generally made available at higher levels in the architecture, uh, which game developers you know, more generally use when developing games. 
the original concept of the game was to take place on an aircraft carrier uh, tied into a conflict between Iran and Iraq. Uh, Liquid Snake would have survived Shadow Moses in this original iteration, but real-world tensions at this time, around 1998-1999, were ramping up uh, between these two countries and, more importantly, between the U.S. and these countries. Uh, so Kojima abandoned the Middle East plot, but the tanker or the aircraft carrier concept would carry forward to the tanker stage that we would get in the game. Influences for Metal Gear Solid 2 would include Paul Astor's New York trilogy, uh, namely the first entry of that, uh, City of Glass, as well as LA Confidential and Terminator 2. Uh, two other big titles around the release of the original uh, Metal Gear Solid, uh, The Titanic and Matrix, would also uh, heavily factor into uh, this version of the game. And uh, Kojima really approached this as a chance to do something new, a true Hollywood game, like a sequel um, that would be un uniquely cinematic to follow up the uniquely cinematic first entry in the series. Um, to that end, he brought in Harry Gregson Williams to do the score of the game. Uh, and the obvious DNA there would seem to be 1996's The Rock, uh, which is very much in the same vein as the original Metal Gear Solid. But Kojima actually tapped the composer after he heard his score on The Replacement Killers a 1997 film with Chow Young-Fat and Mira Sorvino, I believe. Uh, it's actually a pretty cool film. You should check it out. And the score of MGS2 uh, kind of hits higher heights than its predecessor um, because it works back in a lot of the main motifs from the first game, um, but builds out a more kind of sweeping cinematic soundtrack to fit that Hollywood game uh, idea that uh, Kojima was going for. This is right around when games started having real like full orchestral soundtracks too so it's one of the first kind of in that that first vanguard of games having being able the studios being able to afford getting a, a full orchestra for a game which i think is interesting yeah because i think of the more iconic soundtracks before that and it's still definitely kind of midi style music yeah um or very 16-bit or 8-bit i mean there's definitely stuff in the playstation uh late n64 early gamecube era that was starting to you know get there but uh this was really when it started to take off with the playstation 2 because again it being the multimedia device um, and I, I hate to go all Rudy Giuliani here, but 9-11, uh, 9-11, 9-11, uh, this game was developed almost completely prior to 9-11 and then was scheduled to be released in November of 2000 or 2001. Uh, so the original ending of this game had Arsenal Gear, which is a weapon to surpass Metal Gear. We'll get there. Uh, crashing into Manhattan and the Statue of Liberty. Um, the entire ending would kind of be reworked to skip over most of that crash in, you know, deference to the terrorist events of 9-11. So that's kind of where, uh, you know, all the history leading up to the release of Metal Gear Solid 2 my own personal story here um, that you probably picked up in every episode is that I loved the first Metal Gear Solid. I basically got a PlayStation 2 because I knew I was going to get Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, back then, you know, I had a big old solid snake boner. I really loved him in the first game and I really wanted to play more of him, you know, and that's really a big reason because I thought he was a really cool hero um, and there was a really good story behind him. So there is a ride and twist that we're not going to talk about much in this episode specifically, but uh, the ride and twist was disappointing to me at the time as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old guy um, really wanting to play as the very masculine Solid Snake. I still love the game. I'm not one of those people who um, I've heard stories 
you know, from people who worked at uh, GameStop or Electronics Boutique or whatever it was at the time that, you know, people were angrily returning the game the next day because they wanted to play a solid snake and not ride in. I was not one of those people. I still love the game a whole lot. Um, I thought it was kind of weird that they pulled that switch or disappointing. Uh, but over time, I've definitely, definitely, you know, recanted on that. I've come back to really appreciate it. Um, I really love Raiden and I love what the point or purpose of Raiden in this game is, which we'll talk about as we go. Uh, how about you? Where were you with uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 the first time? So that was the first... M- MGS2 was the first game I remember like seeing things about with Metal Gear. It was the first time I ever re- like had any real knowledge of what it was. Because I, I remember that was... I didn't, I didn't have a PS2, but my brother did. And I remember him being sort of like vaguely intrigued by what it was. Uh, he didn't get it immediately, though. I didn't. I, ended, I don't think I ended up playing it until 2007 or 8, after 3, after I played 3. And I remember being very confused by it to the extent that it's, I think it's one of the first games I ever, like, looked up on the internet to feel like, do like do analysis of. I mean, maybe like a Final Fantasy or two, but that's more just like, what was the plot? I don't remember the plot because those games are notoriously labyrinthine. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's weird because I... I liked it when I first played it, but I, I remember being disappointed that there wasn't as much as three as there wasn't as much like just open and open and stealth, stealth sandbox stuff. And now, like, I still think that game that game could use more of that. But it's um, yeah, at this point, it's it's become like I was right before the sort of critical uh, renaissance for this game. And now I, I think like it's maybe the most interesting game that's ever been made <laughs> for many reasons. Yeah. Uh, And it was, you know, definitely one of the first games that was really operating on this kind of level. Um, And I still think it's operating on a pretty intense level, you know, 20 years after the fact. We're approaching its 20 year anniversary uh, later this year. Uh, I definitely agree with all that, but I'm obviously in the bag for Metal Gear. So I don't think anyone takes uh, my ranking that uh, that seriously anymore. But, uh, you know, it's also when we talked about the initial release of Metal Gear Solid in 1998, uh, that was a big year for games. And uh, looking into 2001 a little bit to see the context of when Metal Gear Solid 2 was coming out, it was also a pretty big year for games. Uh, it was the second year of the PlayStation 2, its first full year. We talked about how it was released the previous fall. Uh, but there there was also a bunch of new consoles coming out. Uh, the Xbox, uh, the Game Boy Advance, and the GameCube all came out in 2001. Yeah, when exactly? So the Xbox was right around, it was the 17th or 18th because that's Halo's release date and I had that memorized. Well, I thought I did. Uh, the GameCube was a little before that, I believe. It was earlier in the year. I have that all kind of confused in my brain because my, my first, I had my first experience with all three consoles like at the same time on Christmas break 2001 when I went to my dad's and my brothers had all gotten one. Yeah, a bunch of games came out then. FF10 came out around that time. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3, obviously the the best game of 2001. It's so good. Uh, it's so good. Yeah, GTA 3 was around then, like like we have here. This was more just the year in general, not necessarily around the Metal Gear Solid 2 launch. Well, this is still um, this is kind of the start. I if I looking back of of having most of the big games come out in in November because that's when the consoles released. Yeah, or that that's when like the Xbox came out. And that's when like the Christmas. Because I believe Mario 64 came out in like May. I could look that up really quick. There wasn't like a real designated time. It wasn't so much yeah, June, June 23rd, 1996. Whereas like 
this is the the really the start of the games being quote unquote blockbusters, and and MTOS two was the most uh, anticipated of all of them, and so it's kind of the the beginning of this fall rush of games. I, I feel like. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely the evolution of it because uh, now that you got my uh, wheels turning, I think uh, 1998 might have been the start of that because I think Metal Gear was in September. I think Ocarina of Time was also fall of 98. And I think it's a big strategy to get the game out in time for the holiday season, yeah. but generally a little bit ahead of it uh, so that when the holidays actually come around, um, that's like the second or third wave of shipments going out, you know, in terms of the mass shipments. In. Yeah, because this is still the point where you'd have physical, physical copies would be your, I mean, that's all you had. So you had to have demand, you had to meet demand, which I think is interesting. Exactly. That was all uh, happening at the same time of Metal Gear Solid 2. But, uh, you know, what we're really here to do is actually unpack the stories, the themes, the characters. So uh, let's get into it. Let's actually talk about um, what happens, at least in the opening of Metal Gear Solid 2. We'll talk about the tanker stage or the Zone of Enders demo disc pack-in, which is where a lot of us met the game. I think it actually became available to rent from Blockbuster at a certain point. Uh, that's a memory I have because I definitely did not have Zone of Enders, but I did play the demo disc Uh prior to actually getting Metal Gear Solid 2, which just further intensified my uh, Solid Snake boner. But anyways, the Hudson River, two years ago. The year is 2007. A lone figure walks along the George Washington Bridge during a rainy New York night. Cloaked, hooded, he takes the last drag of his cigarette before discarding it. And then, in a flash, he's gone. His cloak blowing off in the wind, the invisible, silhouetted figure breaks out in full sprint and leaps off the side of the bridge. Repelling down, a blue sneaking suit flashes out from under stealth camouflage. He lowers himself onto a tanker ship, the USS Discovery. The man finally lands on the deck, revealing himself to be none other than Solid Snake, the legendary hero of Shadow Moses. The camera pans up to frame our hero as the title card appears on screen, Metal Gear Solid 2. Sons of Liberty. Okay, that was all a bit dramatic, but I can't really overstate how iconic and, in my opinion, awesome the opening is to Metal Gear Solid 2. Uh, we pick up with Snake infiltrating the tanker USS Discovery, which happens to be the name of the submarine Snake starts off on during the Shadow Moses incident. Uh, put a pin in that. Uh, Snake is now part of Philanthropy, an NGO led by Hal Emmerich, our dear friend Otacon, uh, fighting against the proliferation of Metal Gears. You see, after Ocelot escaped Shadow Moses with Metal Gear Rex's test data, uh, there's just been a uh, Metal Gear arms race of sorts. Uh, every branch of military wants one, and there may even be private bidders in plays like dot-coms and other big tech companies. Otacon tells you he's dug up some info from the Pentagon on a new secret version of Metal Gear, Ray, developed by U.S. Marines, an amphibious Metal Gear that is meant to be an anti-Metal Gear weapon. The plan is for Snake to get some pictures of this new Metal Gear and throw them all online and blow the lid off this whole situation. Uh, but before Snake can begin his infiltration, the guards patrolling the decks of the Discovery are ambushed by what appears to be Russian soldiers. In fact, Snake's arrival onto the ship was all observed by Revolver Ocelot, yet another phantom from Shadow Moses. It seems Snake arrival is all part of some larger schedule. 
Snake first heads to the bridge where he discovers the tanker is bound for Bermuda for field testing. This is a worst case scenario. That means Metal Gear Ray is pretty much operational. And Otacon confirms the terrorists who seize the ship are Russian. They belong to Sergei Gerlukovich, an outlaw general who wishes to restore Mother Russia to its true glory. Snake will soon encounter Sergei's daughter and part of the enemy unit, Olga. Uh, Snake and her face down as the skies briefly clear under a full Manhattan moon. Uh, Snake defeats Olga with his tranquilizer pistol, uh, leaving her unconscious as he infiltrates the ship's belly. Uh, but while this is all happening, Snake is captured uh, on camera by an army cipher, and Otacon chooses this moment to give Snake a dose of truth. Uh, Otacon didn't exactly hack this information about a new Metal Gear. Uh, it was sent to him under the name of E.E., e., uh, his sister, Emma Emmerich. Both now fear a trap, but have no choice but to continue down into the ship's cargo holds. During his descent, he sees the shadow of Vulcan Raven from around the corner, but it turns out to be just a Raven action figure with its shadow projected on a wall. Uh, keep that image in your mind. We're going to come back to that. Snake defeats a battalion of guards before finally reaching the holds. Unawares to him, Ocelot is right behind him, sealing off uh, Snake inside the ship's belly. It's clear that Ocelot has his own agenda as we see him killing his own Russian allies at this point. A uh, triple agent and a triple agent. Uh, in the ship's holds, uh, Snake discovers Marine Commander Scott Dolph addressing a battalion of Marines. Snake sneaks around the troops, taking pictures of the new Metal Gear Ray prototype, including one with the U.S. Marines logo clearly visible on it. Snake makes it to a computer terminal and gets the pictures to Otacon, but before he can escape, all hell breaks loose. Enter Revolver Ocelot, stage right. He applauds Commander Dolph for his speechification skills, but no time for any of that anymore. He's here to take back Ray. General Gerlukovich gets the drop on Dolph, and the Marine forces have to stand down as Ocelot tells them the entire ship is rigged to blow. Gerlukovich goes on about what America has done to his mother Russia, but Ocelot has some bad news for his old friend Sergei. He's not selling Ray to Russia. No, he's taking Ray back. For the Patriots! Lali Lule Lo. <laughs> Ocelot does Ocelot things as he starts backstabbing everyone, killing Dolph and Gerlukovich in a barrage of bullets before setting off the explosives. Chaos ensues as Ocelot makes for Metal Gear Ray and Snake fights his way towards Ocelot. Wait, Ocelot lost a hand at Shadow Moses thanks to Gray Fox, right? So why is his right hand back? Well, you know the obvious answer. It's Liquid Snake's arm, you see? Makes sense, I guess. Liquid didn't need it anymore, and you never know when the clone DNA of Big Boss might come in handy down the road. Uh, but anyway, that, uh, that hand, uh, it starts to take over Ocelot's body when he sees Snake, and all of a sudden, Clam Cam Clark's Liquid Snake voice emerges from Ocelot's polygonal figure. He says he still lives on through the arm, though he's much older now. Though Snake shouldn't worry much, his age will catch up to him very shortly. After all, Big Boss was 37 when his DNA was extracted for Les Enfants Terribles. Liquid Ocelot, at this point, takes over Ray's controls and cuts himself a hole out of the tanker and into the lower New York Bay, just south of the Verrazano Bridge and southeast of Staten Island. Snake makes his own attempt at escape, but the last we see of the legendary soldier is him lost amid the wreckage of discovery, with Otacon yelling, Snake, over the codec. And tanker stage. Yeah, I always thought it was weird that uh, they decide they have to continue on. Like, you could just, they could just get off the tanker once they figure out it's trapped. They could just leave. I guess he, he wants to see Metal Gear. He must have confirmed its existence, but like, 
it's one of the reasons I feel like, uh, I mean, we know for sure that the tanker stage that we see that we play is may not be what actually happened because it just seems, it seems very, um, out of character for snake that he would just sort of willingly throw himself into danger like that for no reason. Like if there was a reason for it, I would understand it. But, um, I think honestly, one of the things just thinking about it now that, that really points this to be, uh, and this is getting way ahead of ourselves, but I mean, people already know this, that one of the reasons that I think this version of the Hanker stage is actually riding playing it in VR is that it says it starts with two years ago. It's not, it doesn't start present tense. It starts past tense. And so I don't really understand if we're supposed to take that to be like snake recollecting what happened for no reason, or if it's supposed to be a record of what happened. Like it's very, it's, it's deliberately like that a lot. And I, I I really, it's one of the things I really enjoy about this game. Yeah. uh, I agree with that last part, but I actually do uh, because the game opens and closes with a snake uh, monologue or um, voiceover narration is probably a better way to say it. I do think he's kind of opening this game up to us. Like, this is the story and this is how it starts. And then he kind of tells us the lesson at the end. Well, not the lesson, but uh, he kind of has a, you know, a wrap-up dialogue that's kind of not in a conversation with Raiden or Otacon, per se. Yeah. uh, But just some kind of, like, you know, we have to fight for the future. Um, I don't have the exact quote. We have five episodes to go before we get there. Um, The reason I do want to say that I think it is real that what we see is that I think when Raiden talks about some of this stuff, like he would know something like uh, when Raiden starts his mission, he thinks what happened here two years ago was the environmental like oil spill. I feel like if the events of the opening tanker stage are what Raiden experienced in VR, he would know that there was like a Metal Gear incident here. He does say, remember, it's indistinguishable from the real thing. He also says, I played the VR simulations of the tanker a dozen times or something. He, do- he does, yeah. One of the big smoking guns for me with that is that um, when Snake is talking about the tanker, they show stuff from the cut escape sequence they had where he's like running back through some of the older part of the tanker as it sinks. Mm-hmm. And we don't play that. That's not the game. So where like did that happen? Is that canon? I don't want to say it's canon. Like, whether or not something is canon is the big Metal Gear Solid 2 question. And my response is, I don't care. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. I think it's it's something to keep an eye on for the rest of the game. Yeah, I think one of the things that Metal Gear Solid 2 does broadly, and especially in the plant part, in the big shell portion, is that Solid Snake is probably the main character of this overarching story, but the camera's not always on him, Yeah, okay. Uh, so to speak. And I think that's kind of a little bit of foreshadowing because we do know from the big shell incident that uh, Snake is able to find Olga's uh, unconscious body that he tranquilized, as we discussed. Yeah. Uh, so, But that's just my reading. And again, I think Metal Gear in general is made to be made for the two of us to be here actually asking these questions <laughs> and not necessarily agreeing on it. Uh, that's part of the experience. And it actually more deliberately, you know, questions our experience of what it was to play this game. Oh, I'll get into that later for sure. Yeah. So that's why I don't want to give it all away now. But I think this is actually good foreshadowing for that, uh, much like some of the Solid Snake stuff is going to be foreshadowing what comes with the rest of the game. But 
Let's have a little more discussion here about, let's say, sequels in general and Kojima's concept of what a sequel should be. And he's famously cited Terminator 2 as an example uh, of a good sequel idea. It's something that fundamentally changed or challenged yeah. what the initial premise was. And it's not, it doesn't have to be that complex. In Terminator 2, it's simply just... Uh, you know, Arnold's a ba- good guy now. Yep. Um, or that, you know, Judgment Day was never, you know, like there's there's layers to that, that the story wasn't complete. Uh, maybe a little more maligned sequel that I actually think about a lot, especially in conjunction with this game, is uh, The Matrix Reloaded. And a lot, a lot of that movie is about telling Morpheus he's kind of full of shit after <laughs> being like the oracle of the first game. So, um, you know, there's all sorts of ways to make a good sequel, but I think that's what Kojima really championed championed in terms of how he wanted to do his sequel and the you know we talked about kojima wanting to make this the hollywood game because you know mgs was considered very cinematic but the uh medium of video games allows him to do you know the sequel in a different way because the narrative and the gameplay is part of telling that story uh but the sequel is also just fundamentally a very hollywood thing uh we live in the age of sequels prequels reboots um Every cynical way that you can try and repackage, uh, you know, some kind of idea or property. Uh, it's a very Hollywood thing. And we should also talk about some of the gameplay enhancements. Because I think Metal Gear Solid 2 is really where um, you can really regularly kind of control the game. It's still a little mm-hmm. janky, mm-hmm. but uh, Metal Gear Solid 1 is a little, a lot harder to go back to. But everything after 2, you can still pretty much do it. Um, a big change that this game introduces and that's going to be a big part of every subsequent game is non-lethal play. You're given tranquilizer guns is usually the base of that, um, but you can just knock people out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a stamina meter for most of the uh, enemies, uh, which means that you don't actually deplete all their health. You don't kill them, but you lower their stamina so they're knocked out, passed out, and you can actually go through the entire game without using lethal weapons. Although there isn't much of a reward for it. It just basically tells you, good job, you did it. Mm-hmm. And then there's stuff like non-lethally taking out Fat Man and then he just blows up anyway. Like, uh, I do got an e- Easter egg for you on that, but I'm going to save that for Fat Man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you, you're right. That is what canonically happens in the game is Fat Man dies even though you trank him to death. Yeah. And speaking of uh, shooting and tranking people, this game introduces first-person aiming, which is one of those quality of life uh, upgrades from the first game that really is part of why this game just plays a lot better than uh, mm-hmm. the first entry. Um, and through the first person aiming on top of being able to shoot people in different places, like in the head or the leg and the different effects it takes, um, how long it takes to knock someone out or kill them with a headshot versus a leg shot. Uh, you can hold uh, enemy soldiers up uh, and you can shake them down for their dog tags or ammo, uh, which is a really neat function. And one of the like, collectible challenges of this game is you can shake down every guard until they give you their dog tag. The first game allowed you to like put your back against walls, uh, which would help you kind of take the camera peek around the corner so you can see if there's any enemies around there. Uh, This game also introduces the fact that you could look around the wall so you get a little more of a view and even pop out with your uh, pistol and actually take out uh, people from that cover position, which is a nice upgrade. Um, I don't use it that much, but it just could be at this point, I played all the other Metal Gear Solid so much that I just don't use that mechanic in later games. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't use it going back to it now. Um, And speaking of the enemy soldiers, uh, the enemy AI is significantly enhanced. 
against. Uh, they're more likely to work in patrols, uh, and they cover each other's backs and, uh, you know, tap each other, tell them where to go. Uh, they communicate via radio. And um, when they're going to call each other on the radio, they usually go and take cover first, and they do it in a way that positions the enemy between you and an exit. Uh, so the enemy AI is really has really taken a step forward in this game. Uh, when reinforcements come in, they're usually heavily armored or heavily weaponed. They're not just your regular sentry soldiers. And enemy bodies just generally don't disappear in this game. You actually need to hide enemy bodies. Um, and if a body is laying out there and the person is tranked, usually the soldier will just come in and say, hey, what are you doing? And wake them up versus uh, if they find a dead body, which will instantly put you into a caution or evasion mode. Uh, so... You know, these are all enhancements and then to maybe kind of up the difficulty with all the enemy AIs because it's still kind of working on that cone of vision logic of the first game. Uh, in the plan stage, when you get to the big shell, uh, you don't have the Soliton radar available to you right away. You have to find a computer node or nerd to hook up to to kind of get the uh, lay of the land and where the enemy soldiers and patrols are. And then uh, a lot of attention was paid to environments. We talked a little bit about this with Metal Gear Solid 1, but the environments in Metal Gear Solid 2, uh, you know, go up the next step and are part of the actual gameplay in a sense that you can drag in wet footprints from outside or rainy areas. Yeah. Uh, bird poop is something that you can uh, slip on and that kind of accumulates over time. So if you're on a map with a lot of birds and there isn't poop, on front of you right now. If you just kind of stand there, it will accumulate. This is the, the the Metal Gear attention to detail that this is kind of the start of it. Yes. The amount of effort people put in for that stuff, for being able to shoot all this stuff in the galley on the on the uh on the tanker, that they all have like discrete animations for you can track flour, you can break, break bottles of glass. It's like incredibly unnecessary and doesn't have like a real gameplay benefit it's just there to prove that they can do it basically which i always appreciate yeah just doing what the machine allows them to do or like showing off its true power uh some of it has some value like you can shoot flower bags and it might disorient guards but yeah like the ice cubes melting doesn't really do anything uh but it is kind of neat that it's there and uh the shadows and lighting and lights are all both part of the mood and part of the cinematic storytelling, but also they can all be played with and altered. You can see shadows of guards mm -hmm. around the corner. You can knock out lights and make it harder for enemies to hit you. So uh, just a lot more environmental stuff. Lockers, we already mentioned, you can hide bodies in them. And there's a little bit more verticality built into this game. It's not like, you know, a huge leap forward, but the same map generally has multiple levels that actually interact with each other in a more meaningful way. There's yeah. a little bit of that in Metal Gear Solid 1 where if you walk over a like a walkway that has a grating that makes a sound, like someone below you might hear that, but they can't see you from down there. Whereas now a uh, line of sight expands vertically as well as, uh, what's it called, horizontally, which also goes hand in hand with that first person shooting that it allows you to also aim up and down, which you didn't have in that first game. Yeah, that's a big change. It's it's huge. And the character models, uh, they do, um, this is, you know, they're using mocap at this point. It's a very infant version of what we're getting uh, 
you know, compared to right now, you know, two, uh, 2001 was the year that Lord of the Rings and uh, Fellowship of the Ring came out, but that was late 2001. Much of this game was developed a couple years before. Uh, things like facial animations and like the super heroic feats of strength, like Vamp picking up the president with one hand. Uh, those are all things that are just animated in a more traditional computer sense and not done with motion capture, people on wires and stuff like that. You could tell the facial animations are done by hand because... Uh, I just rewatched the Twin Snakes after we finished MGS One, even though that's the same engine and it's basically supposed to be what if Metal Solid Two looked like, or what if One looked like Two, and the facial animations are much much worse in that game. Like it's you can tell it's it was just the down to the individual skill of the animators as far as that went. Yeah. And I, I just thought you were going to say it's because you can tell in Metal Gear Solid Three when they actually have it because you can see Snake's teeth. <laughs> yeah, that too. Uh, we should talk just real quickly here that uh, because of this level of detail, this environmental richness, this, you know, more verticality built into the gameplay areas, uh, they did find ways to kind of cheat in terms of memory or the visuals of this game. Like the game still looks really great, uh, but, you know, a lot of the environments when you're in them are kind of simple, especially when you're in the big shell. Yeah especially the exteriors are generally all samey to some degree. Um, and I don't think it's a cheat. I just think it's resource management, so to speak. Um, but also a lot of the real quick uh, kinetic scenes, there's a lot of visual blurring that they use. Uh, so they don't have to preserve all that detail while they're doing, you know, vamp flying around and doing stuff. Yeah. They use uh, blurring techniques really well, which also helps feed the surrealism and the dreamlike experience that the game, especially the Big Shell incident, is really going for. Uh, so, you know, just a little how the sausage is made, uh, so to speak. Kind of, you know, we mentioned some of the influences, but we can dive a little deeper into why they are influences. Uh, we already talked about Terminator 2. Uh, LA Confidential uh, is part of the reason or part of the one of the bigger inspirations, so to speak. Uh, sorry, I'm stumbling on my words, but LA Confidential Kojima has cited as like one of the ur texts or binding texts when he came up with Metal Gear Solid 2 because it's built around lies and deception. Um, it, you know, the movie itself is about deception uh, in the Hollywood media between police and rival, I don't know, mobsters, uh, so to speak. I just saw it and I'm struggling to say, you know, what the <laughs> one through line is because it is really a broad reaching uh, don't trust anyone kind of story. And that's very common to stories about LA and Hollywood, you know, whether it's something like Barton Fink or Sunset Boulevard. Boy, I don't know if I want to open up the Barton Fink Metal Gear portal. I might, I may never come out from that one. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of those uh, pieces of art that touch on LA and Hollywood are a lot about the style and the flashiness of Hollywood and what actually is underneath um, is often hidden, yeah. which is a big part of what yeah. uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 is trying to do. So, And to kind of go with the idea of a Hollywood game, uh, the game itself opens before you you know get to the start menu and actually start the story proper with a full-on trailer-style sizzle reel yep. that's supposed to hype you up and get you excited for the game. And honestly, I watch it more often than not when I'm booting up Metal Gear Solid 2. Uh, it's like a minute and a half, and it's just some of the better sequences and there's all sorts of weird shit in it too like the u.s constitution and japanese handwriting uh it's kind of bonkers but another parallel between the famous uh, the every yakuza game does that and i always watch it yeah i think it's great i i love movie trailers anyways it's especially funny for yakuza 3 which is a game mostly centered around kiryu running an orphanage that the first thing you see when you boot it up is a strip club 
It's like, why? A strip club you go to for like 10 seconds later in the game. It's similarly just like nonsense. And I love that. Yeah, no, it's great. I really love it. And uh, now I'm really getting stoked to dive into the Yakuza series just because it keeps coming up between our episode with Sam and this one. Uh, if if we're bringing it up so much in the context of Metal Gear, that means I'll probably love the game. So uh, a couple other influences. Uh, the Matrix, I wouldn't say it's like necessarily a direct influence. It's just that they're two stories from around the same time that have a lot of very similar concepts. It's just it's just that this is this came out in the five years after the Matrix, so it was influenced by the Matrix in some way. No way you can. And uh, Titanic was also another big one here. Um, I think part of the tanker setting is uh, plays into that. Uh, Jack and Rose, the names of the yep. romantic leads from the big shell part. Uh, and, you know, just I think he's also just a big James Cameron fan in general. So that's going to seep in there. And uh, the game is also very much a New York game. And when I think of New York, the first like hero I think of is Spider-Man. Uh, and I don't know if it's intentional or not, but the fact that... Uh, the story starts on the George Washington Bridge, which is the same bridge that Gwen Stacy died on in the classic Spider-Man Green Goblin story. Uh, Snake's leaping off the bridge. Uh, he's attached by a harness, which, you know, you could pretend is webbing. And he does a big superhero landing on uh, this deck. So it's very evocative of that imagery to me. Um, and I think you want to just speak about games at this time that are invoking New York. Yeah, so... There's a weird. It didn't start happening until a couple of years into the 3D era, but there's there's a bunch of games set in New York that came out in this general time frame, like pre 9/11. Which I'm counting this. I know it released after, but I mean, it had it was not a, a this the design of the game was not informed in any way by 9/11. But like uh, the the first Max Payne is one. Uh, the first Deus Ex is a huge one. Even like Tony Hawk Two and games that had like New York stages, they were always in the like back streets in the dark with dust and like uh, I'm thinking like dirty newspapers everywhere. It's very much like the nineties, like the, that nineties concept of New York as it existed of like this dirty, frightening place, like the, the Gotham, like the Gotham version of New York, you know, crime New York that had been around since the seventies at that point. And it's really interesting to think, I think this may be the last game that this, that appears in because any other game, made after 9-11 it was like this unspoken cultural thing where like no you have to have like new york is, is nice now we like it now and it was really it's really strange because i mean i think i don't know what the exact crime statistics are but like i don't think new york was just safer in 2002 than it was in 2000 it's just the cultural we it was weird you remember like everyone pretended like people who now would, would, would talk about coastal elites would be like i can't believe they attacked New York, the greatest city in the world. And it's like, you live in Austin, Texas. You don't give a shit about New York. But like that, that, that extended two games because games started having New York segments taking place in the day and like trying to show the beauty of the city instead of the whole city just looking. And like, you don't get as much of that with this game because it, again, it mostly takes place offshore. But you definitely like the, the start, the intro definitely has that feel of like, if, if anyone's played, like, the, the first Max Payne is, like, the ultimate game I think of of that. Where, I mean, they jokingly call it Noir York City in that game. And it's, like, somehow that game takes place over one night, that, that one dark, stormy night that, that lasts for 18 hours somehow. Like, it's just dark all the time in New York. There's no sun. That kind of, that kind of New York. It doesn't exist anymore. And it basically stopped existing 
like as soon as the calendar flipped to 2002 in, in, in like pop culturally. And I think that's interesting. I mean, some of that does make sense. I can see this country rallying around New York, but it all of a sudden became America's shining beacon on a hill in a way that it really wasn't viewed before. And I hate to have to mention Rudy fucking Giuliani again on this podcast, but uh, he's a big reason for a lot of that shift because mm-hmm. uh, he basically sold, you know, Times Square to the highest bidder. It went from someplace where, um, you know, it just became heavily more commercialized. They moved people of color and poor people um, into the margins and, you know, kind of out of the central part of Manhattan and like Times Square and all that. I don't put this entirely on Sam Raimi, but look at the, like, even just conceptually, and I don't mean like the conscious, deliberate, like authorial, but conceptually look at how New York looks in the intro of this game and how New York looks in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, which came out less than a year later. And like, that's a big, even though it's the same city, it's just like the tone. Mm -hmm. You weren't allowed to be depressed in New York anymore because it was too close to reality, I guess. It's it's very strange. It's a very American thing, and Kojima would know that, right? given that he consumes so much American media. And that's actually probably a good analogy, too, because Spider-Man is also like Metal Gear Solid 2, something that had to change its ending because of 9-11. Yes. And the fact that Spider-Man 2 ends with, you know, this hero shot of Spidey swinging through a, what, dawn or dust New York, but, you know, like a golden city view of New York to kind of end the movie is not a mistake. That's definitely very 9-11 inspired and the patriotic strain that was running through the country and all of its culture at the time uh, because at this point stuff that was being produced after 9-11 happened is actually starting to come out that following summer uh, so the timing really uh, syncs up there and while we're on New York I had mentioned earlier the New York trilogy by Paul Astor um, and specifically City of Glass the first entry of that trilogy uh, the trilogy is thematically combined but the actual characters from one story to the next are not necessarily the same um i'm saying necessarily because i'm not entirely sure what i just read because i did read it uh (laughs) but a lot of the similarities uh to metal gear solid 2 and a lot of these will rear its head more in the big shell portion but uh there's a character peter stillman in uh City of Glass, there's actually two Peter Stillmans because there's a father and son named that. Uh, There's this common refrain, my name is Peter Stillman. That is not the real name or that is not my real name. Uh, There's going to be a lot of duplicitous names. No, that man is not Solid Snake. (laughs) Yes, there's going to be so much duplicity with names. Uh, Again, especially in the Big Shell incident with uh, Snake and Iroquois uh, Pliskin, Jack, Raiden, Snake himself, Solid Snake, Solidus Snake, yada, yada so on and so forth. And a lot of the stories about figuring out what's happening uh, in a very confusing environment while trying to maintain or discover your own identity. In the story, the main character kind of loses his identity in the process where I think Metal Gear Solid 2 is Raiden maybe reclaiming his identity in the process. Um, And there's uh, central to that story and uh, looking into... Uh, It further central to Metal Gear Solid, it turns out, is the concept of the Tower of Babel, which is something as a heathen, Hindu-raised, kind of atheist now person, um, I didn't really know what the Tower of Babel was, so looking into it, and uh, it's, you know, the story of building a tower to reach heaven. Um, it's a parable that kind of explains why different peoples of the world speak different languages. And, you know, it's just one of those people trying to reclaim paradise or get back to God after uh, being cast out in original sin and all that. 
And uh, it, within the city of Glass Story, there's a character who talks about how uh, the discovery of America was almost a Tower of Babel moment, this new paradise where we can refine God because, you know, no other settler colonialists are here. It's just these indigenous people, which we can pretty much wipe out, even though, you know, we kind of respect their some of their relationship to nature or God as they see it. Um, so you can kind of see uh, the Tower of Babel as a way to reach paradise in heaven. And that's so aptly that you named this episode, A Few Steps to Outer Heaven, which is a solidus quote from uh, later on in the game. Most of these episodes are going to be solidus quotes. I love solidus. <laughs> uh, I really wish he got a lot more in later games in the franchise. Yeah. I'm really sad Metal Gear Solid 4 barely mentioned him other than like one or two times. He does technically show up in it. He does. He does. In all his glory, I would say. But... You know, uh, and we talk about the Tower of Babel here and about uh, reclaiming Lost Paradise. This is actually going to be very fitting when we get to Metal Gear Solid 3, which is kind of about the fall from Paradise or the, you know, equivalent within the Metal Gear franchise because Adam and Eva and Snake and the Philosopher's Legacy as Forbidden Fruit, um, all that stuff is kind of. Uh, you know, working through that story as well. And if you think about the Tower of Babel being an allegory about language, about how we're trying to, um, it, it would try to explain why people have different language, but what Adam was originally tasked to in the Garden of Eden was to give the one true name to everything. Mm -hmm. And then when people were cast out of it, um, you know, that's when the, the need for, or multiple words for the same thing arose out of that. And that's where confusion comes from. And then obviously Metal Gear Solid 5 is very much about uniting the whole earth as one language or as one speech, you know, the language of nukes as Skullface will monologue again to some random guy, not Big Boss. But um, the double meaning of words is something and doublespeak will be huge in Metal Gear Solid 2 itself. Uh, the word babble literally is the Hebrew word for confusion. And it actually comes up in another Metal Gear game, uh, the non-canonical game, Metal Gear Ghost Babble, which is kind of a card game uh, for the Game Boy Advanced. I, I can't remember. It may be the only time we mentioned it also. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I have not played it, and I haven't seen any reason to really, really go back to play it. But I really didn't know about any of this until I started digging into this uh, research mm -hmm, for this mm -hmm. episode. So it is kind of cool how that all works out. We mentioned Vulcan Raven. We saw the fi action figure of him and his shadow on the wall. And I think that's a really big symbolic uh, point of this game or like a moment we can really zero in on. Uh, a shadow on the wall, you know, very classically refers to Plato's cave, which has a lot to do with the shadow as the projection of a thing rather than the thing itself. It could be viewed as the style, uh, but not the substance of uh, you know, the actual thing. And along those lines, the additional versions of Metal Gear Solid 2 that would come out would be called Metal Gear Solid 2 Substance, which allows you to play as Solid Snake in the tanker portion, or the, sorry, the plant portion of this game. So um, that's a very uh, fun idea to think about. But um, I'm going to apologize to Brian here because I have to do a little <laughs> bit of A Song of Ice and Fire shit or Game of Thrones shit. It's both in the books and show. Uh, one of the few things that's in both and that's good in both is uh, they're talking about the concept of power and Varys poses this riddle to Tyrion Lannister that, um, you know, a sellsword uh, stands between three people, a king, a, a king, a rich man, and a priest, and they all, um, all the three powerful people build the cell, uh, ask the sellsword to kill the other two people, and who does the uh, sellsword actually listen to in that case? And, you know... The whole point is the fact that, you know, who, who really has power in this uh, 
situation? Is it the person who has God on his side, the person who has money on his side, the person who has um, the trappings of power, like a king with his crown and all that? And Varys responds that power resides where men believe it resides. It's a trick. It's a shadow on the wall. And that, I think, is very symbolic of what the Patriots are going to be doing uh, throughout the course of this game, is they're projecting a shadow on the wall um, that's kind of their power. And this game is all about being a shadow to the Shadow Moses incident, which we'll dive into as we get into the big shell portion. But we mentioned that the USS Discovery uh, was the name of the submarine from the first game, and now it's the tanker that Snake is infiltrating on the second game. Uh, again, a shadow, a repetition, a carryover from the first game, but the tanker in this game is on the surface level. What's actually, you know, the substance here is yet to be shown to us. Um, our protagonist, Raiden, is a shadow of Snake, you know, almost a white shadow of Snake in that it's a snake that's sapped of color, um, that has no necessary personality of his own. He's even sapped of gender, which is going to be a fun concept to talk about when we actually get deeper into Raiden. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's just the surface of this because all throughout Metal Gear Solid 2, there are going to be characters who are shadows of another character, whether it's from mostly Metal Gear Solid 1, but um, also will reach back further into the canon as these games go on. Uh, Raiden as Snake, Solidus as a big boss, Vamp as Gray Fox, um, and recreating the hallway scene, uh, the Sons of Liberty as a recreation of the Sons of Big Boss, the way that Dead Cells a recreation of Foxhound. Uh, we could go on and on and on about how this game is a lot of shadows or memes carrying forward uh, from earlier iterations of the uh, franchise. Yeah. Um, okay, so I wanted to bring this up now because I was really looking at our outline and I'm not really sure where else to talk about it. I think it's good to sort of contextualize what Metal Gear Solid 2 is, what kind of sequel it is now. This is really hard to segue into. It's a, the literary critic Samuel Delaney, who's from New York, actually, and uh, I believe wrote a novel called Babel or it's Babel 17 something like that oh gosh yeah. I haven't read him in a long time but he has a quote that I, I'm a big fan of and I saw a video that was that had this in it and I really think it, it's appropriate however much as readers we lose ourselves in a novel or story fiction itself not nonfiction fiction is an experience on the order of memory not the order of actual occurrence when you hear a story, it evokes a series of micro-memories from your own experience that inmix, join, and connect in your mind. And in effect, stories are a sustained memory that never happened that is controlled by the author. So, like, the, the best way to describe this, communication is inference entirely. I could sit here and, and I could take 10, 15 minutes and describe perfectly a tree that was in my grandma's front yard when I was a kid. No matter what I do, if you haven't seen that tree, which I, don't, I believe no longer exists... The tree that is in your mind's eye, no matter what words I use to describe it, will be different from the actual tree. And that tree is different from the tree that exists in my memory. These are different shadows, almost. They're, they're as Nisha said, their words are shadows of our feelings, but are simpler, paler. Yeah, it, it's just kind of confusing, but... No, I think you're doing great. Keep going. The way, the way I'm describing this is that when you... Let, let's say the simplest kind of story you can tell, which is in person... Let's say you're on a campfire. Everyone actively participates in this fiction in that let's, if you're telling a ghost story by the campfire, the person telling the story is taking on the persona of storyteller and everyone else is becoming the audience. You're playing a role. It's suspension of disbelief is, is what is, you know, is, is, is what this is. And it, it's something we all 
understand implicitly. Like even when you're very young, it's something that you just humans just sort of get. And you know, it lets you pretend that someone could tell a ghost story about, or you know, the hook hand, the hook on the side of the the car door story. We all know that's fake, but we can pretend that it's real. Just as in the same way, we can pretend that the former U.S. president has a mech suit and he's fighting us on the top of Federal Hall with a sword. The th- most interesting thing about Metal Gear Solid Two, and why I said I think it's the most interesting game ever made, is it, what happens to that sort of alchemy, that sort of equation I was talking about when the author is deliberately breaking the suspension of disbelief and like defying you to do something about it. And I mean, you, the character, like, like we talked about that with Metal Gear Solid, the, the, the best thing about the psycho Manus fight is that it makes you a character separate from snake in the game. And this game really interrogates what, like the role that you have to play as the audience member, you personally, anyone who's played this game or watched this game, have your own version of this game in your head. And the point of this game is Kojima is basically grabbing that by the throat and, and making you look at it, like pulling it out into the sun. And, and they literally, this is the ending. I mean, what, what the version, anytime you experience a story, you construct your own theory of meaning of that story. And whatever that is, is yours entirely. And that's what the end of the game is about. That's, that's why I always scoff at this idea that people have like, well, is, is MGS2 canon? Like none of it's canon. It's not real. I understand that that becomes harder to really understand, especially with four, because four openly retcons to it at, at every possible, like whenever it can. And if it's unfortunate, because if that had been the end, if two had been the end, it'd be a more interesting game. But also, we probably wouldn't be doing this podcast because just two weird Metal Gear games would be like a curiosity and not necessarily a a, a series. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's what I want to really get into. I want to say that also that. To say that Metal Gear Solid 2 is about just that, there's no piece of art that's worth anything at all that's about one thing, unless it's like a like Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, which is like, what, 1,200 words? Like, short enough that it could be about one thing. I mean, that's, that's I think, one of the reasons that MGS4, we'll talk about that, I, I will bring this up a lot more. I think one of the reasons 4 fails in ways that the other games don't is because it's it's about the Metal Gear story more than anything else. There's less external political or sociological i guess in this case case of this game there's, there's not as much in metal gear solid 4 as there is in the other the other three the other first the first original or in v or in peace walker as far as i'm concerned yeah it's it's an extrinsic story rather than an intrinsic story the reason you want to beat metal gear solid 4 is to see what happens in the metal gear story not so much for any sort of personal fulfillment i feel like and those things can be intertwined but i i don't really that that's that's always how i felt about it personally i guess i guess if i have to say if you do have to break MGS2 down into one thing, that one theme, that theme is why should there be a sequel to Metal Gear? And that, I think that's a question that he himself, that Kojima himself, really he imposed on himself a lot is like, why should this game exist other than to be a sequel to Metal Gear? And that question, I know there are people who think that that it, it did not answer that question, but I think that is sort of the that is the pull of Metal Gear Solid Two is like. Why is this here other than to be a sequel to Metal Gear? And I don't know if it ever was really satisfactorily answered. And I think that's the reason it's the most interesting game that's ever been made. Yeah. And I would say, first of all, that was all very well said. I was able to follow that completely. I do have the cheat of seeing the video you're referencing to, and I'll try to throw that on our Twitter feed when we post this episode. Uh, But I think that's all completely on point. And I do think, uh, you know, 
it is a question is like this, you know, I really wanted a Metal Gear Solid sequel. I mean, the way I fell in love with the first game was give me more and more and more. And then he gave me more and it was not exactly what I wanted. <laughs> and and the question is, why? What did you want? And is it is it the tanker section? Because that seems to be what people wanted. Yeah. And that's what he gave us ahead of time. I love it. I love talking about this because he gave us a part of that. He's like, oh, you want Metal Gear Solid 2, you you know, sons of bitches? Here, take it. Here's some Solid Snake on a ship. You're going to get a whole game of this. You know, you'll eat it up. You'll slop it up like pigs. <laughs> Metal, Metal Gear Solid 2, colon, sons of bitches. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, you know, thinking back about it now, I'm like, the ride and stuff is so incredibly, like, it's such complex storytelling, like you're talking about. Um, and, you know... I think you kind of get at it, like, why do we want this? That's an answer everyone has to kind of answer for themselves. Just like what happened in this story is, you know, kind of up to the player to decide what counts as canon, if they care about what counts as canon. Um, I don't think Kojima cares that much about canon because he makes choices later in the games that, you know, he's always trying to service the story and game he's working on now. If it's going to conflict with something in the past... He's not going to be beholden to it. I think Yoji Shinkawa was famously asked when designing characters from the older, you know, part of the series from the 60s, 70s, 80s, what limitations do you put on yourself? And he's like, well, no, I just draw what looks cool. I don't really care about it. Um, they're not letting it be a driving force. And, you know, in a way, all these questions they're asking are reflective of the uh, production mode or the way the people who make Metal Gear Solid think and design games a little bit. You know, they're always questioning what they're doing. And, you know, there was something you mentioned about how the process of storytelling is making memories that never really you experienced. They never actually occurred, mm -hmm. but you're creating those experiences in your mind. At some level, this game is doing that to Raiden. Yeah. Um, because all the VR missions and everything else are things that are like that storytelling process is happening to Raiden. And then part that is part of the storytelling process that's being applied to us, the player. Um, so that process is occurring on several levels, uh, so to speak. It's not just, you know, and I think that's kind of what these sort of meta conversations open themselves up to, because we can maybe go on towards infinity and beyond with, uh, uh, you know, talking about the layers that some of this stuff kind of builds on itself when you really start digging into it and start hitting the bong. Um, <laughs> you could really just go on and on what the layers of experience are and layers of reality that are being experienced within the context of the game. When you read a story, like when you when you were told a story in person, you can ask the person what they mean. When you read a story, let's say you read a, read prose. I mean, that's the simplest. You can't stop in the middle of it and and go up to the author, or even like a theater performance. You you know, you're not allowed to stop up in the stand up in the middle of a performance. You're like, what did that mean? And I think you're not really allowed to do that with a video game. But this game sort of it pretends that you can almost. It's really it's really strange. Like the whole ending sequence is the opposite of that. Like instead of Instead of Kojima leaving it up to you to create meaning, he's sort of overwhelming you with meaning, like just throwing so much at you that it becomes almost impossible to parse. He's just creating context. I mean, you become, quote, you become engulfed in truth. But uh, um, yeah, it's just fascinating. It, it's a metatextually and like as far as the actual mechanics of storytelling go, it's a, it's a, just a fascinating game. It's insane that it fits in with the rest of this series somehow. Yeah, it, it's not my favorite Metal Gear Solid. I think we both agree on that. It's To me, it's the most unique, uh, possibly the most trailblazing. Um, I think the reasons I like Metal Gear Solid 3 the most uh, have 
less to do with necessarily what it says or what it's trying to do on an artistic or thematic level and more just like everything about that game is so tight from the narrative to the systems and all that. Yeah. And I also love Metal Gear Solid 5 and a lot of that is just because it's a lot of Metal Gear Solid to play if I want to play Metal Gear Solid. Um, you know, it's harder to go back to some of these earlier games because it's really four hours of gameplay. Um, if you, you know, just kind of want to sit there and crawl on the ground for five hours, I can do that better in uh, Phantom Pain. But yeah, and honestly, this is just our opening discussion <laughs> about how these themes are going to apply to the game. Because when we actually get into it, uh, what we're experiencing and the conversation that, because the game is a series of analogs, like is Raiden as an analog to Snake and Raiden as an analog to the player. Um, and then the multiple layers in between that. Um, I hate calling things just meta blanketly because it's one of those phrases that's just used so much, you know, yeah. this thing is meta. So what does that mean? What, you know, what does it mean to say any of these words, which is, you know, something that's very core to Metal Gear is finding the meaning behind those words. And that's, again, Solid Snake's kind of closing monologue in this game. Which is the most important monologue in the series. Easily. Thematically, at least. Yeah. Um and I actually find it's overwhelming and confusing. And like you said, it's a, you're engulfed in truth by the end. But uh, playing through it, I just finished playing through it again uh, a couple of days ago. And there is something actually somewhat inspiring at the end about it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's some, like it's what the actual, you know, you can never say goodbye to yesterday, but you can always face tomorrow. <laughs> um, and fittingly, uh not only uh, does this song or does this game end with the song Can't Say Goodbye to Yesterday, I actually uh, have our sound producer, Stephen Boyd, changing our ending song for our Metal Gear Solid 2 games. Uh, we're going to go out for the rest of these episodes on Can't Say Goodbye to Yesterday. And it's all about looking forward um, and finding truth and meaning where you can. Uh, and like I said, it's those feelings are supposed to be confusing and conflicting, but I think they are core of that overall experience that the game's going to give you by the end of it. You see, it's it's just an utterly unique experience, Metal Gear Solid 2. There's nothing else like it, and they'd, I'd be surprised if there ever is again. Yeah, it would have to be something... It, I, I don't even... You can't really say what it is, because I can't say what Metal Gear Solid 2 was when it came out. So, But it feels like it would have to be some elevation of anything that we're currently getting i don't know if you can do an interactive like streaming show and really challenge that i don't know uh, and i don't want to also say that it can't be done because there are a lot of you know smart and talented people out there but i don't know what something like metal gear solid 2 really looks like uh it's it's really one of a kind uh there's no other way to really say it mm -hmm. excellent speech my friend who the Gift of the silver tongue. They say it's the mark of a good officer. And of a liar. Americans are too in love with the sound of their own voice to speak the truth. And with that, that will complete this episode. Our frequency is podcastsonsfrontiers at gmail.com and podsandsfront on twitter.com and instagram.com. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm still brian and i've always been brian <laughs> a shout out to our sound editor once again Stephen boyd aka dj empirical on twitter uh, please remember to like review and subscribe on your favorite podcast application so until next time remember you can't say goodbye to yesterday
It's there that I'll find in a peace not with Atakan yelling snake over the codec and tanker stage. Uh, you talk for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um.